The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning in 1 John, we need to make sure that we are ready to study. We need to uh, make sure sometimes that those uh, things that you use to prop up your Bibles don't uh, are secure so they don't come crashing down. And you know, We can always spot the visitors who are here, kick them around a little bit. And uh, also I want to remind everybody during class it's important to show good manners by being quiet, not talking, because that is a distraction to others around you who are trying to uh, listen to the teaching and study the Word, so we insist on good manners. So settle down and we'll start with a few minutes of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to focus and study the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege and opportunity to study your word today. We thank you for the tremendous wisdom that you have revealed to us, for all of the information that you have given us about yourself and about your grace plan of salvation and, more important, your grace plan of the spiritual life, this remarkable life that you have given to each of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ with all of its many spiritual blessings and assets. Father, we realize that to whom much is given, much is expected, and that this is quite a challenge for us to come to an understanding of all that you have given us and to properly utilize these blessings and assets and to realize the vast scope of your grace in our lives. So now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we would be mindful that this is your word and that you have revealed these things to us, that we might uh, learn how to look at life from your perspective, that we might learn absolute truth, and that we might learn to have our, our thinking conform to reality. Now, Father, we just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, and we continue our study of this fantastic epistle. I think that it is perhaps one of the most significant in the New Testament because of what it tells us about the spiritual life. Now, we have to be mindful of the fact that we are now living in an age that is driven by self-absorption and self-perception. Subjectivism dominates our culture. Very few people even know what objective truth is anymore. It's not only rare to find objectivity, it is even rarer to find it understood. This morning, while I was eating breakfast, I was watching C-SPAN, and folks were calling in with various comments on what's been going on politically during the last week. And I was amazed and astounded to listen to some of the perceptions out there. You would not think that people were talking about the same thing. 
180 degrees opposite because of their perceptions, how they have interpreted what is going on around them. If you are operating on subjectivity, then that is going to skew and distort your perception and understanding of reality. And yet today, very few people realize how subjective they are in interpreting not only the things that go around them in in, in the public arena, but also in terms of their own lives. Too often people don't even understand the term, so I want to take a minute to define the difference between subjectivity and objectivity. Subjectivity emphasizes the perceptions, experiences, background, and emotions of the person who is doing the perceiving. In subjectivity, there's an emphasis, I want to repeat that, there's an emphasis on the perceptions, experiences, background, and emotions of the person perceiving. So that when you look at something, you interpret it in terms of your own emotions, experiences, frame of reference, which means a very limited frame of reference when we're operating on subjectivity. Objectivity emphasizes the fact that that uh, the, the event, the reality, is interpreted in a way that is uninfluenced or, uh, and not distorted by personal perceptions, background, experiences, or emotions. That's what objectivity is. In order to be objective, though, a person has to have an external vantage point or a frame of reference by which to evaluate what's going on and to be able to identify one's own subjective experiences, background, and emotions. If you don't have that external objective vantage point, then you can't get outside of yourself. Let me see if I can chart this a little bit. I'm going to draw a circle, and that circle represents an individual, a person. And each of us have different cultural backgrounds. We may be Asian, we may be European, we may be African, we may be American, we may grow up in a, in a family of background that is wealthy, we may grow up in one that is rather poor, we may grow up in a rural environment, we may grow up in an urban environment, we may have limited education, no education, or a tremendous amount of education, but those are all various factors that affect each of us as people. Uh, we're raised in different settings and different backgrounds where our opinions are shaped by those around us, by teachers, by peers, by fr- friends, by parents, uh, by the things that we read. And those help shape our opinions. We also have different personalities that run the gamut of emotions. Some are more sentimental and emotional than others. Some are people are by nature a little more sensitive to the suffering, the difficulties that other people are going through, and other people are not. So we have basically different emotional uh, makeups. We have um, different uh, religious backgrounds, depending on how you were brought up, the family in which you were born. All those things shape the way that we in we look at and interpret the, uh, the world around us. Now, as a result of things that have taken place historically, philosophically, in our culture, for the last hundred years, Western civilization, really for more than that, for about the last hundred to 150 years, Western civilization and American culture specifically has become more and more self-oriented. The one defining characteristic in a Freudian and post-Freudian worldview is the centrality of the self and our own perceptions. We have developed, in the words of Christopher Leish in his uh, book on narcissism, we developed in the 60s and 70s basically a narcissistic culture, a culture that looks at, a, at life really in terms of me, me, how it affects me, who I am and, and what I do, and, and we've lost that external uh, vantage point. The more self-oriented we, bec- we become, the more divorced from reality we become. The more we interpret things in terms of self 
and in terms of our own self-centered, self-oriented perspective, the more we, or the less we understand things as they actually are. This is characteristic of any society or culture or people group that's rejected the concept of an absolute that exists outside the realm of human experience. We go back to our diagram on the overhead. We have a circle there, and within that circle is what affects each and every one of us, culture, emotions, opinions, religious background. We could also add in things such as um, uh, financial background, socioeconomic factors, things like that. Now, if this is a, a wall that we can't get out of, then we're doomed to interpret whatever is going on around us only in terms of our own experience. And for each of us, that's rather limited. What I'm saying is there has to be something outside of that circle, something that is absolute, that becomes a reference point for being able to understand everything within that circle. If that outside absolute is rejected and denied, then there is nothing to give perspective on that on that circle. By analogy, let's say you live in a in a large city like Manhattan. Many of you have been to New York or maybe Boston. And in it's typical in both Manhattan and I think in some areas of Boston where people grow up in a neighborhood in the inner city and they never get within five or six blocks in their whole life of where they were born. So they have a very limited perspective. Maybe they've never even seen a map of the area in which they're born. They don't understand how they fit in relation to just geographically or things around it. And yet if they were taken up in an airplane where they had a bird's eye view and were able to look down upon the entire city and to see it from from the air, then they would see how they fit into things in terms of its relationship. They would have an objective look as opposed to merely thinking in terms of their limited frame of reference within that five or six square block area. And yet this is exactly what has happened in Western civilization since the early 19th century. As our culture has continuously rejected the existence of an absolute which would define meaning in life. Meaning is sought, meaning and value is sought by things within the circle as opposed to something outside the circle. That's what's called relativism. Everything becomes relative to something else. So relativism goes hand in hand with subjectivity. Now, since Western civilization has been marked by an increasing rejection of the God of the the existence of the God of the Bible, and the existence of an absolute objective frame of reference for understanding and evaluating events in our lives, we have seen a massive shift in the way people think today, as opposed to 150. 150 years ago. The results of doing away with an external absolute are tragic and they reverberate through every single area of our life in ways that many of us are not aware of. They impact our view of politics, law, finance, education, literature, art, music, theater. Every aspect of human endeavor has been impacted by this shift. In some ways, these transformations are overt and obvious to most people, but in other ways, the changes are much more subtle and complex. The more these aspects of our culture become reshaped according to the subjective rules of perception, the less people are able to understand what's going on around them because they no longer have an external frame of reference to objectively evaluate the events that are going on in their lives. The result is we the result is that we interpret everything from the big picture to the small picture of just our own lives, our marriages, our families 
from a subjective and limited framework that is divorced from reality. In fact, we, we lose the ability to objectively look at and evaluate our own lives. The result of that is often we live in live lives of, of self-deception that is grandiose, and, and we're going to get into that. John is going to get into that in this first uh, in the second half of the first chapter of those who deny that they are sinners. They deny they're sinners because they have lost that objective vantage point for being able to honestly and accurately look at their own lives. One result of this is that an event can happen, and the perceptions and interpretations of that event are as opposite as day and night. I mean, I, I've just appalled at some of the things I heard callers say this morning, things that they truly believed, and I, either they're ignorant or they're brainwashed or they, they're totally unable to, to look at life from anything other than their, their limited, limited frame of reference. And the same thing happens in understanding the Bible. Interpretation whether it is the interpretation of events in your life, whether it is the interpretation of events on a national scale, political scale, historical scale, whether it is interpretation of a poem by uh, Wordsworth, whether it's an interpretation of a novel by Dickens, whether it's interpretation of a legal document like the United States Constitution, or whether it's interpretation of the Bible, it's interpretation, and the rules of interpretation are the same, and they don't vary because the object of what, you, of what you're interpreting differs. And that's the problem today, is that we have a battlefield taking place over the nature of interpretation. As American civilization has continued to advance down this road of subjectivism, the distance between those who interpret life objectively and those that interpret it subjectively is becoming wider and wider so that a tremendous chasm is appearing between those who believe there is an objective, external, absolute standard for evaluating truth and reality and those that don't. And what is amazing is that some people, don't, people who don't understand this, at times operate on one side of the chasm and at other times operate on the other side of the chasm. But in a real sense, it is this distinction between understanding that there's a reality, an objective external reality by which everything is evaluated, or whether we evaluate things subjectively, that makes the difference between someone who is conservative, politically conservative, and someone who is politically liberal. And it's the same thing, and it's the same underlying issue that makes the distinction between somebody who is a religious liberal and a religious, and a, and a, and a religious conservative. And it, has, it ultimately comes back to this foundational concept of whether or not there is an external, objective, absolute vantage point by which all things are evaluated. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're a conservative and you believe that, that, you're, that all conservatives, whether you're talking politically or uh, theologically, will always agree. But that's, that's the, this is the big watershed issue. Now, the problem here is the perception of knowledge. The perception of knowledge, and that is, just to increase your vocabulary a little bit, that is the field of knowledge that is called epistemology, E-P-I-S-T-E-M-O-L-O-G-Y, which is from a Greek word, epistemos, meaning, meaning knowledge, and it's the study of knowledge or how we know what we know. And when you end up like we are as a culture in epistemological relativism, it affects everything else. I think that this is at the core of almost every issue in life. Now, I'm going somewhere with this with First John. But if you don't understand this, I mean, I, after watching this this morning, I decided I need to spend some time on this because it affects every single thing in our life. And some of the things that I'm hearing today just indicate that people are epistemologically 
ignorant. They don't know how to think about anything. So how in the world can we think about anything objectively if we don't even understand the first principles about thought? What happened is, or what happened is in the early or late 18th century, a man came along by the name of Immanuel Kant, who was a philosopher, and I don't want to get into a detailed study of Kantianism, but Kant said you basically can't know things as they are. You can only know things as you perceive them. In other words, there's no longer any objective external knowledge possible, according to Kant, only how you perceive it. So one person may perceive it one way, another person may perceive it another way, and to each that's the truth. Ah, you see, truth has now become relative. There's no longer an objective, external, absolute that's real in and of itself. Reality is determined by the person who is perceiving it. That makes reality continuously in a state of flux. Now, this kind of epistemological relativism is not new to the 19th or 20th century. You, you can go back to ancient Greek philosophy and you can go back to ancient Egyptians, and you can see throughout history there have been various systems of, of epistemological relativism. But in terms of our history, Kant's philosophy began to have a radical shift, radical impact on intellectuals in Europe and in America at the academic level, so that by the mid-1800s, the ripple effects of this change in the way people looked at reality began to impact every area of human endeavor. It had an impact on, on history so that it produced new philosophies of history. You had the Hegelian philosophy of history, which gave birth to, birth to the Marxist philosophy of history. Without Kant, there never would have been a Karl Marx. Without Kant, even though there were already movements towards a, towards a, a evolutionary theory without Kant, you never would have had a, a Charles Darwin come up with his concepts of, of biological evolution. You never would have had uh, the subjectivism of Freudian transpersonal psychoanalysis if it hadn't have been for this shift that, that, that reality is ter- determined by the internal subjective impressions of the self as opposed to some sort of of objective reality. It impacted art so that instead of realism, and most of you are familiar with, with the uh, uh, realism of, let's say, the uh, uh, Renaissance art or classic realism where you paint things as they are, as opposed to Impressionism where, where the object is painted as the artist perceives it. See, all of a sudden you go from an objective standard to an internal uh, subjective standards. So art change and gives birth to Impressionism, abstract art, Cubism, and various other manifestations of modern art. It impacted literature and the interpretation of literature so that uh, literature shifts. You read much of modern 19th century, I mean modern 20th century American literature, and it's exp- extremely subjective and depressing because there's no longer any external reality and therefore no longer any hope. So it's, it can be, it's very depressing. It impacts interpretation of every kind of literature from pro- poetry to law. I remember growing up in, in high school and, and studying poetry and hearing, you know, I would read the poetry and, and then you would hear the teacher tell you what the poet, poem met. Some of you have had this experience. And you wondered how in the world they ever got that interpretation from what was written on the page. And that's because the meaning of the text is no longer objective in the mind of the writer, whether it's poetry or history or whatever, but it's in the mind of the reader, the interpreter. So that interpretation now becomes subjective. So the meaning of a piece of literature becomes fluid. Because the way you look at it in 1960s is going to be different from the way you look at it in 1990. And the way you look at it as a 15-year-old is different from the way you look at it as a 60-year-old. But the meaning is this, whatever the meaning you find in it, uh, whatever meaning you find in it is valid because that's how it means something to you. So now you're divorced from any sort of absolute or any sort of, of um, standard. And it no longer matters what the author intended to communicate. What matters is 
what it means to you. Now, this has tremendous implications. It impacted the study of the Bible, and it impacted the study of law. In the study of law, you had the rise of, uh, of men like Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a Supreme Court justice, and changed the way the Supreme Court interacted with law. It began in laying the foundations of what is now called sometimes judicial activism. It changed the way you interpreted the Constitution. See, the Supreme Court was established... And, and judges and the court system was established to interpret the law. Up until you have this epistemological impact on our culture in the late 1800s, the primary view of interpretation of constitutional law was to find out what the writers of the Constitution meant by what they said, and then you applied the law in terms of their intention. So scholars would read the Federalist Papers in order to gain a greater understanding of the thought that lay behind the, the, the uh, laws in the Constitution. That doesn't mean there weren't differences of opinion, but it's a difference of opinion that is grounded in an arena of, of, of objectivity and it means that ultimately what matters in interpreting the Constitution is what the framers of the Constitution intended. So that, and that's what we call strict constructionism. Then, since Oliver Wendell Holmes came along, you have the application of this subjective view, and the Constitution is no longer sought to be interpreted in light of the meaning of the writers, because that doesn't matter, because now it's a living document. So we have to reinterpret it in each decade, in each generation, according to what's going on in, in the society and in the culture. So now you have judges on the bench making law or inventing law. See, that's the role of the Congress, is to write legislation and to make legislation. The role of the judiciary is to interpret it but if you no longer believe in an absolute, then they're free to interpret it however they want to interpret it, which creates new law. That's why when you listen to some of these talk shows and things on television, you hear people respond to what just happened this last uh, fall in the election, that the Supreme Court decided the election. Well, that shows that the people who make that statement don't understand anything that I have just said. What happened in the Florida Supreme Court, which was dominated by liberals, and liberals do not believe, at the core of a liberal worldview is a rejection of absolutes. And the liberal view of the, interp of the interpretation of a constitution is that it's a fluid document. It came out in the second presidential debate when, when um, uh, Al Gore... They were asked the, question, the two candidates were asked a question related to, to um, appointing a Supreme Court justice. And Al Gore made, made the same, or I think uh, President Bush, now President Bush, made the statement that he would appoint somebody who believed in interpreting the Constitution in the light of its intended meaning. Al Gore said, no, it's, he rejects that. It's a fluid document. It's a living document to be reinterpreted in every generation. Now, the point that I'm making is the same kind of thinking that produces that distinction is what has produced liberal thought in Christianity, that the Bible doesn't have any true objective meaning. Anybody can interpret it any way they want to. Well, the Bible can mean anything you want it to, then the Bible means nothing. If any piece of literature can be interpreted any way anybody wants to, Somebody over here can say, well, that means white, and somebody over there means it means black. Then if it can mean both white and black, then it means nothing. And what has happened is because all of us are products, we've been born and raised and educated and influenced and inculcated with the thinking of modern man, whether we realize it or not, the clothing that wraps around our thinking has a lining in it that rejects absolutes. And so we're all walking around wearing this lining in the, in, in the clothes of our thinking, and we don't even realize it all the time. And what I'm doing is trying to bring this out so that we can begin to have a little perception of how the world impacts our thinking. That's what the Bible calls worldliness. 
It's not drinking, chewing, going to movies, dancing, whatever, like the old fundies used to define uh, worldliness. Worldliness is how you think. And if you think in a subjective manner, based on a modern or postmodern worldview, and then you try to come to the Scriptures and interpret it on that basis, then you're, you're, you're conforming your thought to the world. And the Bible says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we have to live on the basis of absolutes. And that comes down to understanding basic principles on interpretation. And as I said earlier, whether you're interpreting a poem, whether you're interpreting a, the, the Constitution, whether you're interpreting a novel, whether you're interpreting your IRS regulations, whether you're interpreting a real estate contract, the same basic rules of interpretation apply everywhere, except as soon as I added those last two examples of a real estate contract and the IRS regulations, everybody suddenly realized that, that no matter how liberal a person is, when it comes to legal documents of a certain nature, it doesn't matter how they feel about it or what they think about it or what their subjective impression is, they have to ask, what do they mean? When we sit down every year and get ready to file our income tax return on October 15th, the question in our mind is not, well, oh, I think this means that I only send them a little bit now. We're not going to get away with that. Because at some point we all have to live in God's world as if there is objective truth. But the liberal rejects that, whether we're talking about a political liberal or whether we're talking about a philosophical liberal, whether we're talking about a religious liberal. Liberalism rejects that because it rejects at its core the concept that there is an absolute reality by which everything else in life is evaluated. Now, when it comes to interpretation and interpreting the Bible as opposed to anything else, we have to recognize at least the first two of these principles apply uh, to, to just about any document. The third is specific to the Bible. And I want to review these three basic principles of biblical interpretation before we go on to our study of 1 John. Because there is a lot of controversy over the meaning of 1 John 1, even among conservatives. And what we have to realize is that all of us come to any document and come to any scripture reference with a certain amount of subjective lining affecting our thinking. It lines the thinking of our soul, and we have to identify. The mark of a good interpreter is someone who recognizes his subjective background, emotions, uh, experiences, and, and biases, and doesn't let that affect his understanding of the text. That is a primary goal of anyone who's going to handle the Word of God because what matters is what the Holy Spirit through, through the Apostle John intended to communicate. And somehow when I come and read the text, I have to recognize that, yeah, I come, I have, a, I have my opinions and my ideas, I have the trends of my sin nature, uh, that uh, means there are certain things I, I don't like reading in the Word and certain things I do like reading in the Word, and that's the way it is with everybody. But I have to be honest and objective to identify what those things are and not read into the text what I want it to say or try to use the text to justify um, some position or view of mine, but to try to get to the, what the Scripture actually says and what God intends to communicate. So there's three general principles of, of uh, biblical interpretation. The first two apply to any, any, interpreting anything. First of all, the meaning of the text is determined by the intent of the author. The meaning of the text is intended um, by the is determined by the intent of the author, and that means that when you have a whether it is a law or a statement in the U.S. Constitution or a state constitution, that it has to be interpreted in light of its original intent and not interpreted in the light of how present circumstances may shape my response to it. And that was the essential conflict between what happened with the Florida State Supreme Court versus the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court 
So you see, and this is where it comes down to conservatism versus liberalism. A conservative believes that they're absolute, so they're going to say the authorial intent is the issue. But it, liberalism says it's not what the author intended, it's the present circumstances that are the, the primary key to interpretation. And that is why if you are a political liberal and you are a biblical conservative, you're fragmenting your soul because you don't understand these things. This is the issue. We, whether, whether you're, no matter what you're interpreting, you always have to apply the same same basic principles. Now, there can still be disagreement. and Somebody may still disagree with certain things, but that wasn't the issue in what divided those two courts. And I'm just using that as an example. I'm not, making, I'm not trying to make a political point. I'm trying to show how throughout our culture there is a deep, deep chasm and division because there are those who believe in absolute truth and work out what that means into every area of life, and those that don't believe in an absolute truth. And too often, those of us who believe in an absolute truth have grown up in a culture where there's pure relativism. And we don't realize, because that's the way we've always thought, we don't realize how much that affects the way we look at life still. And the process of sanctification is learning to identify those factors in our own thinking so that we are transformed and we learn to think objectively and on the basis of reality. Otherwise, you will never understand what the Bible says. And you see this happen all the time. You go to churches, they have Sunday school classes, and the teacher sits down and says, Well, Bill, what does that passage mean to you? I don't care what it means to you. I want to know what it meant to God. And the guy who's sitting there who just opened up Psalm 63 for the first time in his life and read it doesn't have a clue what David intended or what whoever the psalmist was of that psalm, what they intended, what the historical background was, what the Hebrew text says. And it, it doesn't matter what it means to me. And that's the exact methodology that is used in so many, even conservative churches, because they don't realize that there is a, a, a battle going on at deep epistemological levels, and they have pastors who would be scared to death to ever use a word like epistemological because, my, my, nobody's going to come back next week because I used a big word. So we have, to, um, we have to focus on the fact that meaning comes from the original intent of the author, not what I read into it. So that's the first principle of biblical interpretation. The second is that the Bible must be interpreted in the time in which it was written. The Bible must be interpreted in the time in which it was written. That does not mean, as liberal theologians would say, is that, well, they just didn't understand modern concepts like psychology or or certain diseases. They didn't understand the nature of uh, manic depression or schizophrenia. So they called it demon possession. And therefore, it really wasn't demon possession. It was just some mental illness. No, that's not what I mean. By interpreting the Bible in the time in which it was written, it was getting into the historical background. Why did John write this book? What was the historical context? The problem, obviously, was that there were believers who had gotten caught up with false doctrine, ideas that later coalesced and became known as docetism and Gnosticism, and in that type of thinking that was an outgrowth of Platonic philosophy, there's a, it bought into concepts of dualism. And so some of the major, major ideas in that uh, philosophical religious system, going back to Zoroastrianism, was this distinction between light and darkness. So if you're going to come down to a passage like verse 5 where Paul says, and I mean John says, and this is the message, we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. To properly interpret that, you have to understand something about the historical context and something about the backgrounds of uh, Platonic thought and Zoroastrian thought that were influencing the people in the pews of the church in that day. That's what we mean by the fact that the Bible must be interpreted in the time in which it was written. It also means that when we come to a passage like that where it says that God is light, that you don't go look up the encyclopedia or go to a science or physics manual on light and try to figure out all of the uh, components of light, do a study on particle theory, wave theory, 
uh, break it down into all the different components of light, from uh, visible light to invisible light, although there may be some illustrations from that that are uh, edifying and illuminating. Most of that flows out of uh, quantum physics, and I don't think anybody that John was writing to had the least clue as to what quantum physics was. When they heard terms like light and darkness, their frame of reference was either the uh, Zoroastrian or Platonic dualism, or it was, more than likely, if they were, were Jewish, the Old Testament concepts of light and darkness. So if you're going to understand light and darkness, the place to do it is to do a study through the Old Testament of how light and darkness are used and what they are used to teach and illustrate. Same thing with a word like fellowship. You see, this is what happens today. This is why I started off with that long introduction and we went through all that stuff on epistemology, is because what happens in judicial activism, we'll go right back there because that's such a great obvious illustration from today, is that somebody looks at a law and, and, and they have some abstract principle that they just pull out of thin air. It doesn't have anything to do with the framers of the law or the framers of the Constitution. And all of a sudden they say everybody has, everybody's vote ought to be counted. That is an abstract principle. You may agree with that. You may disagree with that. That's irrelevant. That was my point. Is that is not was not an influencing factor in the framers of the Constitution's thought or in the writers of the Florida vote. Now, whether it should be there or not, that's another issue. I'm not arguing that. I'm not arguing that principle at all. What what liberalism does is it invents autonomous, idealistic standards and then uses that to, to judge and evaluate the text and superimposes that as the interpretive standard because that's what they want at that particular time as opposed to going with something subjective. And we do this when we handle the Scriptures all the time. Um, conservatives, do, Liberals do it all the time. And conservatives do it as well. And you don't come along and you read a passage here like fellowship. Well, the first thing that comes along today, oh, we, we're such a... That, in fact, uh, many people say we live in the psychotherapeutic age. The, uh, relationships are the big thing. You go down to the bookstore and just look at all the books on relationships. We are, because we, we're so subjective, you know, everything matters how people relate to us, not how we relate to other people. But it's subjective. We want to have good relationships, good marriage. Everything's in breakdown because we're living in subjectivity and we don't understand how that's fragmented everything. So we interpret everything in light of of relationships. So we come along to verse 3, where John says, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also that you may have fellowship with us. And we look at a word like fellowship, and we understand from a study of the text that, that fellowship is a central idea in the um, in the epistle. But how do we understand fellowship? See, this is the same thing that, that the Florida crowd did. Most Christians today have an autonomous, that means an independent concept of what fellowship is, and then they read that into the text. Rather than going to the text and studying from Acts through Revelation how the word koinonia is used in the original Greek, and then deriving from that your definition and understanding based on authorial intent. See, most people think of fellowship as social interaction. And so you go to a lot of churches and the emphasis is on, oh, everybody, we, we all want to love each other and hug each other. And, and, we, and you have a, a song leader say, okay, everybody stand up and tell the person next to you you love them and you don't know them from the man in the moon. And um, uh, it's all superficial. It's all sentimentalism. It's all subjectivity. It's all designed to make people feel good about themselves. And not that there's, I'm saying that there's anything wrong with that, but that's not the focus of the Scripture. That is a 20th century concept that is being superimposed on the text. I looked up in the dictionary the English word fellowship. Koinonia is often, not always, but sometimes it's translated sharing, sometimes it's translated contribution, sometimes, depending on the context, has different ideas. But if you look up the word, English word fellowship, In the dictionary, it means, one, the condition of sharing similar interests, ideals, or experiences 
as by reason of profession, religion, or nationality. The companionship of individual individuals in a congenial atmosphere and on equal terms. You know, that's cheers. Remember that those of you who have a TV show, you know, the, the, the opening theme song from, from Cheers, a place to go where everybody knows my name. You know, that's it. And that, that's the common concept of fellowship. And you read that into the biblical text, I'm telling you, you don't have a clue what fellowship is. And you're going to misunderstand the function of the body of Christ. And you're going to reinterpret it with, based on this idealistic thing. You've done the same thing the Florida Supreme Court did. You thought, well, this is a great idea. Sounds good to me. Everybody's friendly. Uh, you have social life there. And that's what fellowship means. So when you read the Bible and you say, well, I fellowship that means that you may have a great social life with us and we're going to party together and really have a good time of conviviality. Isn't that great? And what you've done is you've taken this abstract concept and read it back into the text instead of doing the work in, in, in the Greek or, or the Hebrew in the Old Testament, getting in touch, touch with what the original author intended and then develop your meaning out from that. Now, it's real popular to go in, and, and back when I was at Dallas, one of the professors there wrote a couple of books on uh, having to do with the church and, and uh, the focus of the church, and, a lot, and he said, you know, there's just too much doctrinal teaching. Those are just cold uh, people. There's just no friendship there. You know, we need to have... Uh, have fellowship in the church too. And he spawned a whole movement of uh, counterculture churches that came out uh, during the late 70s and 80s called fellowship churches, which is really almost redundant um, terminology. But if you're not really understanding, and incidentally, this guy, even though he was a professor at Dallas, he didn't come out of Dallas and uh, had to revamp his whole approach after his church blew up on him. But... Um, because fellowship is not the key to the Christian life. And yet a lot of people think that it's the body, they interpret the body of Christ within this, you know, fellowshipy social life frame of reference. And um, so doctrine goes out the window. Relationship with God goes out the window. Everything's based on this body life kind of concept that was real popular back, back in the... Um, back in the 70s and 80s, and it's still very popular today, and it's had its uh, production in the way many, many churches have changed the way they do things. Now, we come to verse 3, and we see here, I want to retranslate, go back and review our retranslation. We see that verses 1 through 4 is one sentence. It's a very complex sentence. Verse 2 itself is a Parenthesis. The last clause of verse 1 is, in a sense, a parenthesis. Verse 1, as I stated, is a series of neuter relative clauses in the accusative case, which means that they are the direct object of the main verb. But we don't find the main verb until we get to verse 3, which is very, uh, which is a complex, difficult situation for most English readers to understand. And so if you want to catch the flow of thought in John's mind, uh, we would retranslate these three verses, first three verses. We proclaim to you. That's the main idea. The we refers to John primarily, but it is a plural because he is including his apostolic um, brethren. We proclaim to you uh, with reference to the message of life. So that's the subject of this whole Epistle is going to be the message of life, and this is the spiritual life and not how to gain a spiritual life. He's not talking about the gospel. That was the subject to the sign sections of the, of the uh, gospel of John. He's talking about the abundant life that Jesus promised, not the acquisition of life without end in heaven. We proclaim to you concerning the message of life, what was from the beginning... That is the beginning of Jesus' ministry during the time of hypostatic union from the, his public ministry specifically. What we have heard, that is, uh, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes in terms of his teaching and our witnessing of his application of those same truths in his life. What we beheld and our eyes handled, we understood its significance. We were physically involved with it. And the life was revealed, and we have seen and give our testimony and announced to you 
the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we've seen and heard we announce to you also that you might have fellowship with us. So we have gone through the first two verses and focused on the significance of those clauses. We've seen the main idea here is that they are announcing or proclaiming something of value to these believers and it has a purpose. And that purpose is so that you might have fellowship with us. But what exactly does he mean by fellowship? That is crucial to understanding this passage and to understanding this epistle. Because what he is doing, he's setting up a a flow of logic here. And he is saying basically that we apostles have fellowship with God. And we want you, believers, to have fellowship with us. And the logic is that if the believers are in fellowship with the apostles, then they're also going to be in fellowship with God. He is not making fellowship with the apostles or human fellowship the be-all and end-all of the Christian life. Because ultimately what he is going to do is base all of this ultimately on having right doctrine. And from that right doctrine, flowing right behavior or application. It is not just a matter of right behavior. See, that's that's moralism. That's just simple morality. Go out and do right. He's not saying that. He says it has to flow from a right belief system, the right thing done in a wrong way. Is or for wrong reasons, is not right. So it's based on this concept of fellowship. Now, fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia. K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A. And koinonia has the idea of partnership, Sharing something, sometimes it's translated contribution as when one church would contribute financially to needs in another congregation. And that was um, because of their partnership in Christ, contribution. But the bottom line is, and this is where you get into a battle theologically, is there are those who want to equate fellowship with salvation. That's not what John does. That's not what the New Testament does. In fact, the word, some people will say, well, you know, it's only mentioned here that we make too big a deal of being in fellowship. The word that John uses that is the, that's the biblical word, that's the synonym for fellowship, is the word that we studied back in uh, our study of John 15, abiding. Abiding in Christ. And that, that is the synonym that John prefers to use for fellowship. And that implies a continual uh, relationship, ongoing relationship with Christ. So that fellowship begins with fellowship with God and the relationship to man is secondary. That's why I'm emphasizing the fact that it goes to right doctrine. If you believe the wrong thing about God and Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit and salvation, you can't have fellowship with God. And fellowship with God is the foundation so that when the Bible, what we'll see is when the Bible talks about fellowship, it has, it starts and surrounds the person of God. It is a God emphasis and not a people emphasis. First verse to look to is in Acts 2.42. Acts 2.42 describes the priorities of the first church in Jerusalem. And they were continually devoting themselves. Devoting themselves has the idea of making this the highest priority in their life. Devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to doskalia, doctrine. To the apostles' teaching, to their doctrine, and to fellowship. I want you to note the punctuation here. Comma. Now, it looks in the English as if there are four things here. The apostles' teaching into fellowship to the breaking of bread into prayer. There are only two things there. Doctrine and fellowship. The last two, breaking of bread, which is the communion service or the Eucharist, and prayer are appositional to the noun fellowship, koinonia. So that fellowship is defined further by 
the communion service and prayer. Now, in the communion service, when the Lord's table and in prayer, who are we having fellowship with? One another? No. It's with God. So their priority was the doctrine and fellowship with God as exemplified through prayer and the Lord's table. So the first time we run into this word, it's not talking about social interaction among Christians. It is talking about Christians understanding and participating in their relationship with God. It's understanding the blessings and benefits of their relationship with God and living their life in accordance with that. That's what fellowship is. Living your life in accordance with the blessings and the benefits of our position in Christ. Another passage is in Romans 15:26 for Macedonia and Achaia, those are two regions in ancient Greece. Macedonia's up north, Achaia is down south where uh, Athens is located. He's talking about the believers in those two regions have been pleased to make a contribution. There's our word koinonia again. A contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Now, why did they do that? Just out of the goodness of their heart? No, because they understood that all believers are members of the body of Christ and we participate in the same benefits and blessings of salvation. And as a result of our relationship with God, it is to impact how we relate to one another. But the starting point is the emphasis on God, not the emphasis on man. You see, the biggest mistake that people make in Christian fellowship today in churches is they think that Christian fellowship is a means of sanctification, a means of spiritual growth. And I heard one teacher one time say there are three, three ways you grow spiritually, or three, three basic tools that God uses to advance us spiritually, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the people of God. Well, in some general sense, that's true, but never once is the, the people of God, the body of Christ, ever a means of sanctification. Now, I may be encouraged by another believer. Uh, I may have a good relationship with other believers, and as we go through life together, and we go through hard times and good times together, we encourage each other with the Word. And as I see another believer apply doctrine... Then my, and, and advance spiritually and survive uh, harsh adversity in life, I may gain uh, encouragement from that, but there's no content there. The Word of God is what gives content. The, the Christian uh, association with other believers is merely uh, secondary. But it also brings up the point that there is a certain level of, of responsibility there in terms of support and encouragement for other believers. 2 Corinthians 6.14 states, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? And boy, is that an important concept to understand, because there we have three words that are going to be fundamental to understanding 1 John 1. Fellowship, light, and darkness. And that there is opposition there. Light and darkness don't go together. So that means you can be in fellowship or out of fellowship. It is not simply a relative term or a term related, or a term of salvation. Second Corinthians 9.13 is another passage related to giving and fellowship. Because of the proof, the demonstration given by the ministry, this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution, your participation to them and to all. And that's referring to the fact that the Corinthians sent a generous gift to the church, uh, I believe it was in Jerusalem, that was going through a famine. So they were. it was the liberality of their participation. Because of their relationship with God, it impacted the way they related to the other uh, congregations. 2 Corinthians 13:14 gives us a, a, a perspective of uh, how God impacts fellowship in the, in the work of the Trinity. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that's, the, that's going to be a, uh, a subjective genitive, God's love, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship that comes from the source of the Holy Spirit. So, it, it, fellowship in 2 Corinthians 13:14 is specifically identified as a ministry related to God the Holy Spirit. 
And then we look at Philippians 2.1, where Paul uses a series of first-class conditions to emphasize the realities we have in Christ. If therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there is any consolation of love, and there is, if there is any fellowship from the source of the Spirit, and there is. Once again, we see that fellowship is part of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Now, that is going to drive us right back to some of our favorite references on the Holy Spirit. And that is that when we sin, we quit walking by, we have already quit walking by means of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.16, walk by means of the Spirit, and it will be impossible for you to bring to completion the deeds of the flesh. So once we make a decision to stop walking by the Spirit, then we begin sinning. And when we do, we're grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. When we're grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit, we can't benefit from the fellowship which comes from the source of the Holy Spirit. So when we sin, it breaks fellowship. And then Philemon 1.6 is another passage that relates to fellowship. Paul is talking to Philemon. And he says, I pray that the fellowship, that is the, your, the participation of your doctrine, may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. So there it relates to his fellowship is related to uh, Philemon's doctrinal understanding first and its application uh, then should flow from that. So there we see that fellowship is not social life with Christians. Christian fellowship is based first on a relationship with God based on right doctrine and results in right behavior. Christian fellowship, therefore, is not sitting around and just having a good social time with other believers. We've all had that experience. We've had great times together with other believers. But Christian fellowship is that which is specifically centered around the person of Christ. So you can have two carnal believers together and they can just have a great time. And um, I know many carnal believers who get together and they have tremendous enjoyable times. Great parties. But uh, that's not Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship is something far beyond simple social interaction between Christians. The meaning of koinonia has to do with a joint ownership, a joint partnership and it relates to the joint blessings and benefits which we all share as part of our spiritual life. And we participate in that when we are abiding in Christ. Now, the danger of Christian fellowship is that too often we have a tendency, especially in our age because of the cultural influences, to put an emphasis on people over against God. We're more concerned about what people think about us than what God thinks about us. We're more concerned about what people think than about what God thinks. We're more concerned about our relationships with people than we are with our relationships with God. And it's more difficult to analyze our relationship with God because God is not physical. He's not here. He's not present and people are. And it takes more to discipline ourselves to put a focus on God and put the emphasis on God than on people. We have to beware that and be wary of the fact that those who emphasize a Christian fellowship is a means of sanctification, for it is not. Our Christian friends can be either a source of cursing or a source of blessing, depending on whether they're walking by the Spirit or not. I know, going back to high school days and college days, that some of the greatest experiences I had in carnality were with other believers that I grew up with in a doctrinal church. We had some great times. I'm not recommending that, by the way. They, they, uh, we, we led each other down the path of carnality and for a while enjoyed ourselves until it all came home to roost. So we can either advance or grow in the spiritual life, but it is not based on people. It's based on our relationship to God. And so our God, so God emphasis must take priority over people emphasis. Now, this does not mean, don't go, I've heard some Christians go to the extreme of saying, well, it all has to do with God. I'm not going to have anything to do with other Christians. No, that is the secondary application of fellowship. That's the participation aspect from these churches. They were giving, they were, they were helping, they were encouraging other, other believers. But that is secondary 
to the relationship with God. Because you make God first doesn't mean the other is no longer in existence. So there is a role and a place for other believers. And I have seen believers at some times in their lives uh, get so independently thinking that all of a sudden they wake up and there's not another believer anywhere around them. There's not a, there's not a believer in their work. There's not a believer in their social life. And all of a sudden... Everybody that they're listening to is operating on human viewpoint and pagan thought. And the next thing you know, they're in the tragedy of extreme carnality because they're no longer thinking like a believer. They're thinking just like the world around them. And even though they listen to a tape every day or they rebound every day, they're not advancing anywhere because they have no longer uh, having doctrine and something that surrounds them or or is uh, an influence on their lives. So ultimately then Christian fellowship is that which is based on doctrine and issues in right behavior. So John says, "Well, we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also this is the doctrinal message that we're proclaiming." And the result with the result that by understanding these doctrines and putting them ap- into application, you may have fellowship with us. And the reason they'll have fellowship with us between the apostle here and the believer here is because if they apply the doctrine that they're taught, then they'll be in fellowship with God. And if two believers are in fellowship with God, then they're in fellowship with each other. But if you have one believer out of fellowship and another believer in fellowship with God, they cannot be in fellowship with one another. There can be no Christian fellowship unless both believers are in fellowship with God. And that is why he goes on to say through an ascensive kite, the last clause, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. That is the source. That's our source of everything is our relationship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for Your Word that it speaks clearly and objectively to everything in life and that it is our responsibility to listen to it so that we can understand objective truth so that we can understand that there is an absolute that goes beyond our subjective impressions, experiences, that goes beyond our culture, that goes beyond our education, that goes beyond our socioeconomic background, that speaks to reality, and that as it gives us objectivity, it is then our decision as to whether or not we're going to change our thinking and conform to your word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, we pray that you would make that sure and certain right now. All you need to do is put your faith in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you put your faith in Christ, who died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, was buried and rose on the third day, then you are instantly regenerated and you have eternal life, which can never be taken and will never be taken away from you. Father, we pray that for the rest of us, we would be challenged by the things that we have studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.